Okay, so as um, Sarah mentioned right at the start, we are in a series looking at the book of Luke. And we are kind of preaching through it. And we're in Luke 8. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 8. And we're going to read from verse 26. If you haven't, don't worry, because it's going to come up on the screen. And um, let's jump straight in. So this is Jesus with his disciples. So they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. And when Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time... This man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him. And though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs and he gave them permission. When the demons came out on the man, they went into the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. And when those ten of the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, in his right mind, and they, sorry, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people from the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. And the man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return home. Tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Let's pray, shall we? Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that your word says about itself, it's living and active. So we want to ask, Father, for this to be living and active in our hearts today. Let your kingdom come in our hearts as we hear your word today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, now this is quite a story. There's, as ever, so much you could bring out of it. Uh, but I want to pick on, I want to really pick on four different things I'm going to talk about. I don't normally give away my points. I normally just let you find them as I go. But I'm going to tell you today, I want to talk about the presence of evil, the beginnings of freedom, the intent of Jesus, and the power of a story. Okay? So the presence of evil, the beginnings of freedom, the intent of Jesus, and the power of a story. The first thing you see in this story as Jesus steps ashore is the presence of of evil. Jesus tells the disciples, let's go to the other side of the lake, and the only person, at least initially, who meets them is what we're described as a demonized man, a demonized outcast. Now, for those of us who have grown up in a Western context, which is not everybody in this room by any means, often we find the idea of demonic power as very difficult to get our heads around. Okay? We have grown up, for those of us like me, have grown up in a kind of like a context which we have We have somehow scientifically, intellectually tried to eradicate the idea of spiritual forces which are evil. We find them primitive, 
we find it somehow intellectually insulting. We have kind of like, oh, well, that's a bit, you know, it's a bit primitive. And yet it's strange, isn't it, that we're happy to sign up to the idea that there is a spiritual being, you know, who is good that we call God. But we're not happy with the idea that there could be my spiritual presences which are evil. And I'm going to put it to you that you're going to have a hard time reading the Gospels <laughs> and a hard time understanding this story if you don't accept the fact that the Bible talks about demonic forces. Yeah? Now, the Bible doesn't attribute every issue in everybody's lives to demonic forces by any means. Some of you have heard me quote C.S. Lewis before, who basically says there are two big failures. One is to completely ignore the presence of demonic powers, and the other one is to overemphasize the presence of demonic powers. You know, behind, it's not behind every cough or cold or every inability to find a parking space that's a demonic power. Okay, that's just not real. The Gospels are clear. Not all sicknesses have anything to do with you know, demonic powers, you know, not all problems, not all issues of psychology or mental well-being are to do with demonic powers. But Jesus does at times identify demonic presence. And as Jesus goes out and he is the kingdom bringer, there is a clash of kingdom power that Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God and he experiences spiritual attack. And you see it absolutely in Luke 8. You cannot really explain Luke 8 and this story without going... Jesus clearly identifies, and Luke clearly identifies, there is demonic power at work in this man's life. In fact, he calls himself Legion. Right? Legion may be some way a connection to the idea that this was also a Roman center of power and there was a Roman legion there, history teaches us. But clearly what he's saying is he is under the influence of the grip of hundreds if not thousands of demonic powers. I mean, he is in an absolute mess this guy's life has been completely gripped by demonic power and jesus you know jesus encounters this man now can i just say just i'm not going to talk on demonic power today it's not what i'm talking about but just say you know the bible does not talk about possession nowhere in scripture does it talk about possession it talks about demonization that is not the same thing if you're a christian you are if you like, owned by Jesus. You have given your life to Jesus. The Spirit of God lives within you. So I don't think the Bible teaches you can be possessed, but it does teach you that you can be afflicted and gripped by demonic power and affected by it. And if, for those of you who know me, I grew up in the UK. I lived in London for many years. And the way my brain tends to work is I tend to downplay this stuff. So I'm not a big exaggerator of this kind of thing. But I would say for Sarah and myself, having moved to the, to the Netherlands in the last two years, having come to plant a church, which we have loved being, doing this and are loving doing this, I would say we have experienced more spiritual attack than I've ever experienced in my entire life. I, I, and I would have never have in, thought about it. I didn't even think about it. It just surprised me. But I would say we have experienced more spiritual challenge than I've ever experienced. I don't think... I think I think there is such a being as Satan, the Bible clears it to and he does not want another church in Rotterdam. That, is been, that has been our experience, that there have been normal things that have become uh, somehow heavy, oppressive, difficult, numerous problems just kind of just jumping out up of nowhere, and it's felt like, oh, I feel like we are in a spiritual battle. And if you read Ephesians, Paul also says there is a spiritual battle. It is not against flesh and blood. He says, for our struggle, Ephesians 6, is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, 
against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So we need to be switched onto the idea that if you're a Christian and you're serious about being a Christian, at times you will encounter spiritual attack. We don't overemphasize it. We don't glorify it. We don't go ghost hunting for it. But we're not naive about it. Because the Bible says don't be naive. It says actually be aware of the devil's schemes. Right? Be aware of. So don't kind of like be kind of intrigued by it. But similarly, don't be naive about the fact it doesn't exist. It, there is spiritual oppression. And Jesus meets a man in Luke 8 who clearly is under demonic attack and under the grip of demonic powers. Now, here's the thing when you read Luke 8, is we read that story and go, and go well, that's an awful position to be in. What an, that, and, we, and we can't really associate with it because the guy's story is so extreme. He lives in the tombs. He's been outcast. He doesn't wear any clothes. Right, So it's super extreme, so we kind of go, we can't read ourselves in the story. But actually, if you read the passage carefully, and if you read Mark 5, where the story is also told in that gospel, what you'll find is he wasn't always like this. This is not how he grew up, right? This has not been true of him for his entire life. So it says, Mark says, no one could bind him anymore. The implication being that there was a time when they could. Luke says, for a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but he, had, but he had lived in clothes. Again, the implication is there was a time when he did. There was a time when he was clothed, lives in homes. They could bind him. There were people who could somehow get involved with his issues, but now they can't. So it has got more extreme, in other words. And the problem is we just read the story in Luke 8 at the extreme end of his experience of evil. But actually, it wasn't always like... In other words, this grip on his life has got worse. And Tim Keller, when he talks about this passage, says, he says, basically identifies in here a pattern of evil which we all experience to some degree. And what he says about it is, first of all, it says, when, when we give ourselves over to evil or we engage somehow with evil, we make a pact with something, and I'll explain that in a moment, Often what happens in one way, it empowers you, like it has for this guy, and in another way, at the same time, it enslaves you. So this guy is empowered. He is super strong. Like, nothing can chain him anymore. So he's been empowered, and yet he's totally enslaved at the same time. Right? And that is the pattern that we go through when we give ourselves to things which are not of the kingdom, or in fact, when we give ourselves to something, when we make an idol of something in our lives. So you think even of good things, right? Really good things. Let's, let's think of a career. Careers are good things. To work hard is a good thing. The Bible encourages that we should work hard. But we give ourselves to our career. If our career becomes first in our life, in other words, we look to our career to give us the sense of purpose and satisfaction, the sense of security that only Jesus can give us. If we put it first, the Bible calls that idolatry. We're making our career an idol. And if we make it an idol, we will sacrifice to that idol. We will give everything to it. We will sacrifice our time. We will sacrifice our relationships. If we're married, we might sacrifice our marriage. If we're parents, we might sacrifice effectively our kids. All on the altar of a career. We've made it an, we've made it an idol. Now, what does the idol do? The idol drives us. I will give 12 hours a day to this job because I need it, right? I need, so I will give everything. It drives us. It empowers us. But what is actually happening to us? 
we are becoming completely enslaved. Even good things, when we make them the ultimate things, they empower us, but they enslave us. Because we've put them in the place that only Jesus should be. And notice, no one can help him. They can't control him. He can't control himself, and they can't control him either. And what we're seeing is, this is what happens when evil grips us. In the end, although we can do a bit of self-help, although there's some human interventions and strategies that can help us, in the end, fundamentally, our, our most fundamental level, we cannot fix ourselves or save ourselves. We need a saviour to intervene in our life and rescue us from ourselves. That's the gospel. You and I cannot rescue ourselves. We need a saviour. Just like this man needed a saviour, we're in the story as well. Now, hopefully you don't walk around naked in the cemetery, okay? I imagine that's, if we do, we probably need to have a chat. But somewhere in there, you and I are there. There are things where we give ourselves to stuff and we cannot fix ourselves. We need a saviour to intervene. It's humbling. (laughs) That's why it's so hard. But we need a saviour. So we see something of the presence of evil. But we also see the beginnings of freedom. Because when this man (coughs) comes into the presence of Jesus, freedom starts. That's what's so beautiful about the story. The legions of demons cannot cope with the presence of Jesus. It's interesting as you read through Luke 8, what you see is Luke is building a pattern. He says, look, clearly they've, they've just been across, they've crossed the lake, they've encountered a storm. Jesus calms the storm. He has authority over the storm. Then if you read on, he meets the woman suffering with bleeding and heals her. He has authority over disease. Then Jairus' daughters died. He raises her. He has authority over death. And here, what you're seeing, he has authority over demons. So Luke is building a picture of Jesus' authority over nature, over disease, over death, and over demonic power. And when Legion meets Jesus, the demonic powers just, literally, they just crash at the floor. They cannot stand in his presence. And freedom begins because this man recognizes who Jesus is. That is where freedom begins when we recognize who he is. So it says, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice. Imagine he's shouting, like literally screaming, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high? I beg you, don't torture me. So he knows, he sees who Jesus is. He gets who the Jesus is. And that is the beginning of freedom, seeing who Jesus is. Now it's interesting, isn't it? Because you read through the gospels, All the religious guys, well, not all of them, most of them, don't get who Jesus is. Now, they're sane. They live in houses. Morally, they seem upright. They're obeying the law as best they can. But they don't understand who Jesus is. This guy, who is in a total mess, totally in the grip of demonic power, probably who's, you know, he's naked right in front of Jesus. This guy whose life is an utter mess. 
who is ostracized, who can't even control himself. This guy sees who Jesus is, understands, and that is the beginning of, of freedom for him. What it means is this. It is never your intellectual insight that saves you. It is never your moral living. It is not how morally upright you think you are or not. It is not the extent of your failure. None of those things save you. The only thing that saves you is the object of your faith, who's Jesus. This guy, who's in the grip of thousands of demons, gets utterly liberated because he recognizes who Jesus is. That's it. So if you ever needed reassuring that if you're a mess, it's okay to be in church, here's the story. Because we think of church as being a place where people get themselves sorted out and then we'll come to church. And I say, no, 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 no. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. I'm here to seek and save messed up, locked up, addicted, enslaved people. So we cannot make church or faith something that we, oh, I'll clean myself up and then I'll come. Oh, I'll clean myself and then I'll come back. No, 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 no. No. He says of the, of the younger son in the story of the prodigal sons, while he was still eating with the pigs, he decides to go back, right? Doesn't clean himself up. This guy is in utter state and yet he sees who Jesus is and that is the beginning. It's where you put your faith or who you put your faith in that counts, and that's the only thing that counts. But you also see in this story, so we see about the presence of evil, we see about the beginning of freedom, but we also see about the intent of Jesus because this story begins, actually, because Jesus turns to the disciples slightly earlier in verse 22. We didn't read it. Jesus casually says to his disciples, let's go to the other side. Now, we read that and we don't even, yeah, okay, let's go to the other side of the lake. Fine, it's like, let's go to Carlingsa. Like, okay, fine, yeah. No, no, but that's not, that's not what's going on in this story. Jesus is saying, no, let's go to the other side of the lake. When he said that to the disciples, John Ortberg in a book called Who Is This Man? It's all about Jesus and different aspects of Jesus' influence in history. says, when he says that phrase to the disciples, it is like he's detonating a bomb. Because for the Jews, the other side of the lake is like evil territory, okay? That is the region of the Decapolis, it's the ten cities, it's, it's pagan, it's enemy territory. You can tell it's pagan because that's where they keep pigs, Jews didn't keep pigs. But it, it would have been for the Jewish people, not just a bad place. This was like evil, it's like saying, Jesus says to them effectively, let's go to the dark side. Yeah, if you're a Star Wars fan, okay, that's what he says, come to the dark. Jesus goes, we're going to the dark side. It was a center of Roman power. There were like there were seven nations of Canaan settled there. There were ten cities. There were the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Gigashites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, not to mention the Gigabytes and the Megabytes. <laughs> Good, I just wanted to check you're still with me, okay? And he says, let's go to the other side. And you can imagine the disciples are like, you are kidding. Right? It, it would have been like in the Second World War, being in France, and Jesus going, let's go to Berlin. Now that's like enemy territory. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I'm not just for your side, I'm, I'm for every side is my side. Because we're very good, aren't we, making about us and them. And Jesus goes, there is no us and them, it's just me and you. 
whether you're Gentiles or Jews or sinners or whether you think you're not sinners but you really are, it's just me and it's you. Jesus deliberately chooses the most hostile, the most evil, the most dark, the most unwelcoming place to go. And he goes, let's go there. Okay? Which is why, as Christians, we have to live and we have to be church in places which are hostile and dark and unwelcoming because that's what the gospel is. It's no, it's no, it's no accident that Jesus is born to a family who are un, on the run in an outbuilding, being hunted down, right? He's, he's a refugee born in an outbuilding with surrounded by animals. Why is that? Because right even at the very beginning of the story, he's saying, I'm coming for the darkest places in the world. So think about your workplace. Think about your friends. Think about your neighbors. Think about the people you, you think are most hostile, most unreachable, most fallen, and Jesus goes, let's go to the dark side. Let's go to them. Because we look at them and we think, oh, God, there's no chance. They are completely unreachable. They are way too far away. They're complete. And Jesus is like, not for me. They're not too fallen for me. So he goes, let's go to the other side. And Jesus meets a, demon- a demonized man who is crippled by demonic power. And when he meets him, he is absolutely freed and healed and set in his right mind. And then there were two, well, there were three really pretty strange things that happened. Okay, the first one we're not going to get into. The first one is the pigs. Okay, now you can read lots of scholars about the pigs and everybody disagrees. Right? What I, my question about the pigs is, why does he not just send them into the wasps? Because the wasps are already demonized, right? <laughs> so just a few more demons in the wasps, what difference does it make? <laughs> he sends them into the pigs, and it's just a weird story, right? And we look at it and go, oh, my goodness. But, I mean, think about the wealth that they lost. So you can read about the pigs. I can't really explain it. It's a strange bit of the story. But what I do want you to notice is this, okay? Pretty much everywhere Jesus goes, people are saying, stay with us. They're running from everywhere they want to get to him. They're like, stay with us, Jesus, stay with us. You know, we love what you're doing. This place, they are begging him to go. <laughs> yeah? They're begging him to leave. And then, everywhere else, seemingly, Jesus goes. He goes, follow me, follow me, follow me. You come and leave everything, follow me. This guy, who is desperate to go with Jesus, Jesus goes, I'll get in the boat and then I'll leave. As he's getting in the boat... Legion, or what was, we don't know what's called him now, Legion Liss, whatever his name is, <laughs> is saying, is begging Jesus, please let me come with you. And Jesus goes, no, you stay, go home and tell people what God's done to you. So in every other place, it seems to me, Jesus, people are begging Jesus to stay, and he's this bunch, I want him to leave. And it, it feels like most of the rest of the time he's telling people, leave everything, follow me. This guy says, don't follow me, go home. <laughs> and then you have the pigs thing as well, okay? Now, what, what is that all about? Well, I think they want him to leave because they see Jesus has power, but they know he's from the other side. So they are scared. They've seen what's happened to these pigs. They are scared. It says they're, they're fearful. So they are scared that Jesus is going to use his power against them. 
Okay, well, you, you often see that. People kind of, I kind of believe in God, but I'm, um, no, no. Because it's scary. The idea of God is scary. God's going God's to judge me. You're right. He, he, we, God will judge all of us one day. You need to be under the blood of Jesus, right? For that to pass over us. But they are scared because they don't understand grace and mercy and kindness. So they want Jesus to leave because Jesus is not a hope. He's a threat. So that's why they want him to leave. And Jesus tells this man to go home because I think Jesus understands the power of a story of a changed life. Now what's quite odd about it is what you discover is you think, well, Jesus tells him to go home and tell everybody. But if you read the story, everybody's already here. So the guys who had looked after the pigs have already gone and told everybody and everybody's turned up. So they already know what's happened. But Jesus goes, no, go home and tell people what's happened. He's like, they're already here. Like all the, all the people have seen what you've done. Why do I need to stay to tell them given that they already know? What is that about? Well, I think what it's about is people don't need news. What they need is a story of a changed life. They need to talk to him. They need to see what's happened in his life. Because if they get that, Jesus changes from a threat to a hope. And right now he's a threat. And what's interesting is if, you know, a few verses earlier in Luke, Jesus has been teaching about the parable of the sower and seed. And what he says in that parable is some people's hearts are not receptive to the gospel. So if the seed comes, it just it's just ruined it doesn't it doesn't take root or it does take root but it gets kind of like choked by weeds so what is jesus saying jesus is saying to this man these people are not ready for me these people are not ready to receive me but they are ready to receive you so go home and tell them what god has done and what's amazing in the story is the man he says the man goes home and does exactly what jesus told him to do if we live lives like that, if I lived a life like that, that would be a good life. <laughs> so often Jesus tells us to do stuff and we kind of go, yeah, well, maybe. This guy does exactly what Jesus tells him to do. Now, what's fascinating, and Luke doesn't record this, but Mark does record this. Do you know what happens next in the story? Because in Mark 5, you get the first time he goes to the other side of the lake. And in Mark 6 and 7, you get the second time Jesus goes over to the other side of the lake. He goes, let's go to the dark side again. So they go back. Do you know what happens when they go back? Thousands turn up. Thousands. This time they are running to him. They're, you know, healing. Jesus does the miracle with the food again with this bunch as he did with that bunch. Yeah? To two different places. They have gone from leave, don't stay with us, we don't want us anywhere, don't, we don't want you anywhere near us, you've got to go, to now they are desperate for him. What has changed? You've got to assume somebody, this guy, has told his story. That's what's changed. Jesus is no longer a threat, now is a hope. It means, friends, People need to see our lives and we need to tell our stories. And sometimes we don't think we have much of a story, but you have more of a story than you realize. And God has placed you where you are 
right now for a reason. There are people around us that God has orchestrated to be in our orbit. Now I've realized I'm not bad at showing my faith when it kind of the opportunity appears, you know, someone asks me. But I'm not that great at kind of like pursuing it. But Jesus says of himself, I've come to seek and save lost people. In other words, he is seeking lost people. Actively, intentionally. That's why he says, let's go to the other side. Go, we're going. Let's do it. And I was like, I think Jesus is saying to me, actively seek lost people. It's taken me a few years to work that one out. Jesus has put people around you who he is seeking and he wants you to seek. Sarah and I have had the privilege, even in the last few weeks, of just meeting people, often with our dog, got, and, we, and ending up talking to them about faith. And I'm like, Jesus, you are putting us in a place for a reason. He is putting us in a place for a reason. But he's putting you in a place for a reason. Jesus says this, doesn't he? Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let your light shine. Show them. Let them see your life. Don't live in the church bubble all the time. In other words, 1 Peter 3 says this, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Okay? So tomorrow, you know, when someone says to you, what do you do on Sunday? You just say, I went to church, heard this brilliant preacher, or whatever phrase you (laughs) want to put on it. But just, like, be open about your life. Jesus is seeking lost people. Now, last thing as we close. Jesus frees and delivers the most fallen, broken, demonically afflicted man you can ever imagine. He lives in the tombs, ostracized. He can't even clothe himself anymore. Okay, he can't control himself. He is completely broken, basically. And Jesus immediately frees him. And what it says about him, which is really beautiful, it says, when the crowds got there, they see this man sitting at the feet of Jesus, his master, dressed in his right mind. So he's now clothed and in his right mind. So it doesn't matter how messed up you are. Okay? It doesn't matter how broken you are. It doesn't matter how much shame we've carried from the past. Okay? He, he, that's the business he's in. He's freeing, cleaning, forgiving, healing, bringing back people like us who are, carry all this stuff, who can't even control ourselves sometimes. Now, how does he do it? He does it because of the power of the cross and the resurrection. Jesus takes our place, and he does so. He utterly defeats sin. He triumphs over demonic powers. He disarms death. And this man, who was naked and rejected and lived amongst the tombs, is now clothed and accepted and healed. Right? That's what we see with legion or legionless. And that happens because Jesus would one day be stripped. He would one day be rejected. He would be broken, and Jesus will be driven into a tomb. 
So what we see in Legion, Jesus will one day be stripped naked. He will be one day rejected and ostracized. He will be broken. His body is broken. He is driven into a tomb so that sin and death and disease and shame and guilt is utterly defeated so that you and I can come home. So we don't get to come home because there's anything particularly special about us. We get to come home because he took our place. And he goes through that so that we get to be clothed and healed and accepted. So we must never come and go, I don't know if I can be accepted. What are we saying about the cross? He has utterly opened the door, right? So that we can come home. Let's stand. We're going to just, I think we're just going to pray.